Section 18 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 11. The Emperor and Empress at the Summit of Prosperity. Part 2. Lord Palmerston, writing from Paris in Charles X's time, said, quote, Bonaparte in the last years of his reign crushed everyone else, both in politics and war. He allowed no one to think and act but himself. Somewhat the same remark could be applied to the third Napoleon, but Napoleon I was a great administrator as well as a great general. His activity was inexhaustible. He corresponded with everybody, he looked after everything, he knew whether he was well or ill served and his mode of obtaining power did not hinder his availing himself of the best talent in France. The case of his nephew was the reverse of this. His highest quality was his tenacity of purpose, and his disposition was inclined to kindly tolerance, even of pecuniary greed and slipshod service. He could rouse himself to great exertion, but in the later days of imperialism pain and his decaying physical powers had rendered him inert. Moreover, in his general habits he had always been indolent and pleasure-loving. In carrying out the coup d'état, nine-tenths of the public men in France had been subjected to humiliations and indignities, by which they were permanently outraged, and a host of co-conspirators and adventurers had acquired claims upon the emperor that it was not safe to disregard. Places and money were distributed among them with reckless profusion, and many a shady money transaction, throwing discredit on some men high in favour with the emperor, was passed over to avoid exposure. On the other hand, the emperor improved Paris till he made it the most beautiful city in the world. It was his aim to open wide streets through the old crowded quarters where revolution hid itself, hatching plots and crimes. He provided fresh air and drainage. He turned the Bois de Boulogne from a mere wild wood into the magnificent pleasure-ground of a great city. He completed the Louvre, and demolished the straggling, hideous buildings which disfigured the Carousel in Louis-Philippe's time. The working population, which his improvements drove out of the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, emigrated to high and healthy quarters in Montmartre and Belleville, where a beautiful park was laid out for them. No part of Paris escaped these improvements, though it took immense sums to complete them. But while their good results will be permanent, their immediate effect was to raise rents and make the increased cost of living burdensome to people of small incomes. The work brought also into Paris an enormous population of masons, carpenters, and day-laborers, a population which was a good deal like the monster in the fairy-tale, which had to be fed each day with the best. For if once it became hungry or dissatisfied, it might devour the man of science who had brought it into being. Still, the French are ungrateful to Napoleon III when they forget how much they are indebted to him for the extension of their commerce, the growth of their railroads, the improvement of their cities, and above all for his attention to sanitary science and to agriculture. When he came to the throne, every traveller through France was struck by the poor breeds of swine, sheep, and cattle. The slovenly system of cultivation, the wide wastelands, the poor implements for farming, and the want of drainage. In his exile the emperor had lived much with English landowners, and he endeavoured more than anything else to improve agriculture. He spent great sums of money himself in model farms for the purpose of showing how things could be done. But while commercial, agricultural, and manufacturing prosperity increased in France, so also did the cost of living, and the cry, quote, Put money in thy purse, end quote, found its echo in the hearts of all men in all classes of society. Speculation of every kind ran rampant, 
and by the year 1869 the cost of the improvements in Paris alone became greater than France could patiently bear. Personally, Louis-Napoleon had strong sympathy with the working classes, and was always seeking to benefit them. He favoured cooperative societies. He was planning, when he fell, a system of state annuities to disabled or to aged workmen. He abolished passports between France and England, and also the French workman's character book, or livret, which by law he had been compelled to have always at hand. In the midst of the Emperor's other perplexities there came, during the first days of 1870, a most damaging occurrence connected with his own family, an occurrence with which the Emperor had no more to do than Louis-Philippe had had with the Pralet murder. But it helped to impair the remaining prestige which clung to the name of Bonaparte. Prince Pierre Bonaparte, grandson of Lucien, was a dissolute and irregular character. His cousin, the Emperor, had repeatedly paid his debts and given him, as he did to every one connected with the name of Bonaparte, large sums of money. At last Prince Pierre's conduct grew so bad that this help ceased. Then he threatened his cousin, but the Emperor would not even buy an estate he owned in Corsica. Prince Pierre went back, therefore, to the cradle of his family, and there got into a fierce quarrel with an opposition member of the Chamber of Deputies. The deputy, like a true Corsican, nourished revenge. He waited till he went up to Paris, and there laid his grievances against the Emperor's cousin before his fellow deputies of the opposition. They at once made it a party affair. On January 2, 1870, the day the reformed Chamber of Deputies was opened, two journalists of Paris, M. de Tourvielle and M. Victor Noir, went armed to Pierre Bonaparte's house at Auteuil to carry him a challenge. They found the prince in a room where he kept a curious collection of weapons. He was a coarse man, with an ungovernable temper. High words were exchanged. Victor Noir slapped the prince in the face, and the prince, seizing a pistol, shot him dead. He then turned on M. de Tourvielle but the latter had time to draw a sword from his sword-cane, and stood armed. Victor Noir's funeral was made the occasion of an immense republican demonstration, and M. Rochefort reviled the emperor and all his family in the newspaper he edited, La Lanterne, calling upon Frenchmen to make an end of the Bonaparte. Prince Pierre was tried for murder and acquitted. Rochefort was tried for seditious libel and condemned. It was an ominous opening for the new chamber." The Emperor had been most anxious that it should contain no deputies violently opposed to his new policy, and the elections had been scandalously manipulated in the interest of his dynasty. Thiers complained bitterly to an Englishman who visited him of the undisguised tampering with voters in this election. He said, quote, The government pretends to believe in a chamber elected by universal suffrage, and yet dares not trust the votes of the electors. But mark my words, this tampering with an election is for the last time. What will succeed the empire I know not. God grant it may not be our country's ruin. But the state of things under which we live cannot last long. It is incumbent on honest men to lay before the emperor the state of the country, which his ministers do their best to keep from him. For a long time I kept silent. It was no use to knock one's head against a wall. But now we have revolution staring us in the face, as the alternative with the empire." As the little man said this, we are told that the fire in his eyes gleamed through his spectacles, and as he walked about the room he seemed to grow taller and taller. The new constitutional ministry, into whose hands the emperor proposed to resign despotic power and to rule thenceforward as constitutional sovereign, had for its chief M. Émile Olivier. Marshal Le Boeuf, made marshal on the field of Magenta, was the minister of war. The debates in the chamber were all stormy. The opposition might not be numerous, but it was fierce and determined. It scoffed at the idea of France being free, 
when elections were tampered with to sustain the government. And finally things came to such a pass that the emperor resolved to play again his trump card and to call a plebiscite to say whether the French people approved of him and wished to continue his dynasty. They were to vote simply yes or no. There was not such open tampering this time with the vote as there had been in the election of the deputies, but all kinds of government influences were brought to bear on prefects, maires, and other official personages, especially in the villages. The result was that seven million two hundred and fifty thousand Frenchmen voted yes, and one and a half million no. But to the emperor's intense surprise and mortification, and in spite of all precautions, there were forty-two thousand no's from the army. It was a terrible discovery to the emperor that there was disaffection among his soldiers. Promotion, many men believed, had for some years been distributed through favoritism. The men had little confidence in their officers. The officers complained loudly of their men. A dashing exploit in Algeria made up for irregularities of discipline. Even the staff officers were deficient in geography, and the stories that afterwards came to light of the way in which the War Department collected worthless stores, while serviceable ones existed only on paper, seem almost incredible. Yet when war was declared, Émile Olivier said that he went into it with a light heart, and Marshal Leboeuf was reported to have told the Emperor that he would not find so much as one button missing on his soldiers' gaiters. The discovery that the army was not to be depended on, and needed a war of glory to put it in good humour with itself and with its emperor, decided Napoleon III to enter precipitately into the Franco-Prussian War, while he still had health enough to share in it. Besides this, a struggle with Germany was inevitable, and he dared not leave it to his successor. Then, too, if successful, and he never doubted of success, all opposition at home would be crushed, and the prestige of his dynasty would be doubled, especially if he could, by a brilliant campaign, give France the frontier of the Rhine, at least to the borders of Belgium. This would indeed be a glorious crowning of his reign. He believed in himself, he believed in his star, he believed in his own generalship, he believed that his army was ready, though his army and navy never had been ready for any previous campaign, and he believed, truly enough, that the prospect of glory, aggrandizement, and success would be popular in France. Spain was at that time in want of a king. Several princes were proposed, and the most acceptable one would have been the Duc de Montpensier. But Napoleon III, who dreaded the rivalry of the Orléans family, gave the Spaniards to understand that he would never consent to see a prince of that family upon the Spanish throne. Then the Spaniards took the matter into their own hands, and possibly stimulated by a wish to make a choice disagreeable to the French emperor, selected a prince of the Prussian royal family, Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern. The emperor Napoleon objected at once. To have Prussia on the eastern frontier of France, and Prussian influence beyond the Pyrenees, was worse in his eyes than the selection of Montpensier, and it was certainly a matter for diplomatic consideration. M. Benedetti, the French minister at Berlin, was instructed to take a very haughty tone with the king of Prussia and to say that if he permitted Prince Leopold to accept the Spanish crown, it would be a cause of war between France and Prussia. The King of Prussia replied substantially that he would not be threatened, and would leave Prince Leopold to do as he pleased. Prompted, however, no doubt, by his sovereign, Prince Leopold declined the Spanish throne. This was intimated to M. Benedetti, and here the matter might have come to an end. But the Emperor Napoleon, anxious for a casus belli, chose to think that the king of Prussia, in making his announcement to his ambassador, had not been sufficiently civil. A cabinet council was held at the Tuileries. The empress was now admitted to cabinet councils that she might be prepared for a regency that before long might arrive. She and Marshal Leboeuf were vehement for war. 
the populace, proud of their fine army, shouted with one voice, A Berlin! and on June 15, 1870, war was declared. Let us relieve the sad closing of this chapter, which began so auspiciously with the Emperor and Empress in the height of their prosperity, by telling of an expedition in which the glory of the Empress as a royal lady culminated. The Suez Canal being completed, its opening was to be made an international affair of great importance. The work was the work of French engineers, led by M. Ferdinand de Lesseps, in every way a most remarkable man. England looked coldly on the enterprise. To use the vulgar phrase both literally and metaphorically, she, quote, took no stock, end quote, in the Suez Canal, and she sent no royal personage nor other representative to the opening ceremonies. The only Englishman of official rank who was present was an admiral, whose flagship was in the harbour of Port Said. The Emperor Napoleon was wholly unable to leave France at a time so critical. But he sent his fair young Empress in his stead. He stayed at Saint-Cloud, and took advantage of her absence to submit to a severe surgical operation. The Empress went first to Constantinople, where Sultan Abdul Aziz gave a beautiful fete in her honour, at which she appeared, lovely and all-glorious, in amber satin and diamonds. She afterwards proceeded to Egypt as the guest of the Khedive, entering Port Said November 16, 1869, and returning to Paris on the 5th of December. The opening of the canal across the Isthmus of Suez, which was in a manner to unite the eastern with the western world, caused the eyes of all Christendom to be fixed on Egypt, the venerable great-grandmother of civilization. The great work had been completed, in spite of Lord Palmerston's sincere conviction, which he lost no opportunity of proclaiming to the world, that it was impossible to connect the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. The sea-level, he said, was not the same in the two seas, so that the embankments could not be sustained, and drift-sands from the desert would fill the work up rapidly from day to day. Ishmael Pasha, the Khedive of Egypt, had made the tour of Europe, inviting everybody to the opening, from kings and kaisers, empresses and queens, down to members of chambers of commerce and marine insurance companies. Great numbers were to be present, and the Empress Eugenie was to be the Cleopatra of the occasion. But suddenly the Khedive was threatened with a serious disappointment. The Sultan, his suzerain, wanted to join in the festivities and if he were present, he must be the chief personage. The Khedive would be thrust into a vassal's place, and all his glory, all his pleasure in his fete, would be gone. The ancient Egyptians, whose attention was much absorbed in waterworks and means of irrigation, had as far back as the days of Sesotris conceived the idea of communication between the Nile and the Red Sea. Traces of the canal that they attempted still remain. Pharaoh Nico, in the days of the prophet Jeremiah, revived the project, Darius and one of the Ptolemies completed the work, but when Egypt sank back into semi-barbarism, the canal was neglected and forgotten. It does not appear, however, that the pharaohs ever thought of connecting the Red Sea with the Mediterranean. The canal of Sesotris and of Pharaoh Nico was a purely local affair, affecting Egyptian commerce alone. Some modern Egyptian engineers seem first to have conceived the project of a Suez Canal, but the man who accomplished it was the engineer and statesman M. de Lesseps. In spite of all manner of discouragements, he brought the canal to completion, supported throughout by the influence and authority of the Khedive. The first thing to be done was to supply the laborers and the new town of Ishmaelia with drinking water by means of a narrow fresh-water canal from the Nile. Till then all fresh water had been brought in tanks from Cairo. Next, a town, called Port Said, after the Khedive who had first favored the plan of the canal, was built on the Mediterranean. The canal was to run a straight southerly course to Suez. 
At Ishmaelia, the new city, it would connect with the railroad to Cairo. Between Port Said and Ishmaelia, it would pass through two swampy lakes. In seven years, Port Said became a town of ten thousand inhabitants. The total length of the canal is about ninety miles, but more than half of it passes through the lakes, which had to be dredged. The width of the canal is a little over one hundred yards, its depth twenty-six feet. About sixty millions of dollars were expended on its construction and the preliminary works that it entailed, these last all tending to the benefit and prosperity of Egypt. The grand opening took place November 16, 1869. The Sultan was not present. He had been persuaded out of his fancy to see the site, and the Khedive was left in peace as master of ceremonies. The Emperor Francis Joseph of Austria was there in his yacht, and the Empress Eugenie, the bright particular star of the occasion, was on board the French war-steamer L'Aigle. As L'Aigle steamed slowly into the crowded port, all the bands played, Partant pour la Syrie, le brave et jeune Dunois, end quote, the air of which had been composed by Queen Hortense, the mother of the emperor, so that it was dignified during his reign into a national air. That afternoon there was a religious ceremony, which all the crowned heads and other great personages were expected to attend. Two of the sovereigns, or heirs apparent, present, were Roman Catholics, one was a Protestant, and one a Mohammedan. The crescent and the cross for the first time overshadowed worshippers joining in one common prayer. The empress appeared, leaning on the arm of the Emperor of Austria. She wore a short, pale grey silk, with deep white Brussels lace arranged in paniers and flounces. Her hat and veil were black, and round her throat was a black velvet ribbon. The Mohammedan pontiff who officiated on the occasion was understood to be a man of extraordinary sanctity, brought from a great distance to lend solemnity to the occasion. He was followed by the chaplain of the empress, a stout, handsome Hungarian prelate named M. Bauer. Even up to the morning of November 17, when the passage of the fleet was to be made through the canal, there were persons at Port Said who doubted if it would get through. The ships of war had been directed to enter the canal first, and there was to be between each ship an interval of a quarter of an hour. They were ordered to steam at the rate of five miles an hour. L'Aigle entered first. La Pelouse, another French ship, had the greatest draught of water, namely eighteen or nineteen feet. The scenery from the Suez Canal was not interesting. Lakes, then undrained, stretched upon either side, the banks of the canal being the only land visible. But as evening fell and the sun sank, a rich purple light with its warm tones overspread everything until the moon rose, touching the waters with her silvery sheen. Before this, however, the foremost ships in the procession had safely reached Ismailia. There the Khedive had erected a new palace in which to review his guests. They numbered about six thousand, and the behavior of many of them did little credit to civilization. The Khedive had arranged an exhibition of Arab horsemanship and of throwing the jerid but the sand was so deep that the horses could not show themselves to advantage. The empress, wearing a large leghorn hat and yellow veil, rode on a camel, and when an Italian in the crowd shouted to her roughly, quote, Lean back or you will fall off, heels over head, end quote. the graceful dignity with which she smiled and accepted the advice won the hearts of all beholders. That night a great ball was given by the Khedive in his new palace. Quote, it was impossible, says an English gentleman, to overrate the gracious influence of the empress's presence. The occasion, great as it was, would have lost its romance if she had not been there. She it was who raised the spirit of chivalry, subdued the spirit of strife, enmity, and intrigue among rival men, and over commerce, science, and avarice spread the gauzy hues of poetry." Alas, poor empress, 
Ten months later she was hurrying as a fugitive on board an English yacht on her way into exile, having passed through anxieties and griefs that had streaked her hair with grey. Even in the midst of her personal triumphs in the East there were clouds on the horizon of her life which she could see darkening and increasing. A few days before the fete of the opening of the canal she writes to her husband, who, though unfit for exertion, had gone into Paris on some state occasion, quote, I was very anxious about you yesterday, thinking of you in Paris without me. But I see by your telegram that everything passed off well. When we observe other nations, we can better perceive the injustice of our own. I think, however, in spite of all, that you must not be discouraged, but continue in the course you have inaugurated. It is right to keep faith touching concessions that have been granted. I hope that your speech to the Chamber will be in this spirit." The more strength may be wanted in the future, the more important it is to prove to the country that we act upon ideas, and not only on expedients. I speak thus while far away, and ignorant of what has passed since my departure, but I am thoroughly convinced that strength lies in the orderly sequence of ideas. I do not like surprises, and I am persuaded that a coup d'état cannot be made twice in one reign. I am talking in the dark, and to one already of my opinion, and who knows more than I can know but I must say something, if only to prove, what you know, that my heart is with you both, and that if in calm days my spirit loves to roam in space, it is with you both I love to be, in times of care or trouble." End of chapter 11 End of section 18